This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It is Tuesday, November 14th, 2023. Welcome to Now on uh, with Dave Brown. I'm coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. Let's hit those horns and go. Ooh, those horns, they were they were quick to, to come in there. Coming up on the show today, Odin's Rethinking Disability Conference is currently taking place in Richmond Hill, Ontario. I'll share my interview with one of the event speakers, Kelly Thibodeau. Kelly will chat about the importance of accessible practices in the world of social media. And a House of Commons committee has made its recommendations for a veterans employment strategy. Reporter Megan Gilmore lays out the details. All that and more to come up on the show, but first, we start with the top news stories of the day. A new international report indicates that the world is off track in curbing global warming and tackling climate change. The report finds that targets have been missed in all but one measurement. Charles de la Desma has the findings. Study co-author Kelly Levin, Science and Data Director at the Bezos Earth Fund, says this is not the time for tinkering around the edges, but instead it's time for radical decarbonisation of all sectors of the economy, adding, we're woefully off track and we're seeing the impact of inaction unfold around the world, from extensive wildfires in Canada, heat-related deaths across the Mediterranean, to record high temperatures in South Asia. The only bright spot is global sales of electric passenger vehicles are now on track to match what's needed, along with many other changes to limit future warming. I'm Charles Diladesma. And then back here at home, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev says that he has yet to take a position on the Liberals' plan to ban replacement workers during labour negotiations. Speaking from Vancouver, he says he wants to look at all the details of the bill before coming to a decision. We're going to study the legislation. I never take a position before I have had a chance to actually look at what's written down on paper. He did say that inflation is the key factor for the numerous strikes that have taken place. Roughly 12% inflation in the last two years. That's like a 12% pay cut. How are people supposed to pay their bills? So it's no wonder that workers are going on strike to try and protect their purchasing power, feed their families, pay their mortgages, and heat their homes. In, in Ontario, Ontario's new lieutenant governor is set to take office today with all the pomp and ceremony. John Kendi has the details. Edith Dumont will become the province's 30th lieutenant governor and the first francophone to hold the office. The ceremony today is set to begin with Dumont riding in a carriage to the Ontario legislature and a vice-regal salute to the outgoing lieutenant governor. The official party is then set to go into the legislative chamber where certain constitutional requirements will be fulfilled, such as an oath of office and an oath of allegiance to King Charles, while surrendering the Great Seal of Ontario to the new lieutenant governor. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. And finally, with the writers and actor strikes finally finished, 
CBS has released its post-strike schedules as networks mark the return of your favorite shows. Jason Nathanson has the rundown. What is happening to our family? Young Sheldon's family has a return date. CBS, the first network announcing dates for its shows to go back on the air post-actors and writers strike. Broadcast TV's top comedy, Young Sheldon, will be back on February 15th, along with Ghosts and So Help Me Todd. Broadcast TV's top-rated show overall, NCIS, will be back on February 12th, along with NCIS Hawaii and comedies The Neighborhood and Bob Hart's Abishola. Also that week, FBI, SWAT, Blue Bloods, and more return. The mini-season will run through May with 10 to 15 episodes per show. Jason Nathanson, ABC News, Hollywood. And that's it for the top news stories of the day. It's now time for the daily polls. First, we will start with Monday's results, where I asked you, the 2023 Grey Cup will be held this weekend in Hamilton, and Green Day is set to perform the halftime show. Should the Grey Cup use Canadian performers for their halftime shows? 67% of you said yes, they should. 8% of you said no, and 25% said I don't care. We had a couple of responses on Facebook, starting with John, who wrote in yes, but don't get me started about all the damage Bell has done to the CFL. And Brett commented, ideally yes, but I don't care. The league is trying to expand its reach and viewership, so international performers may be the way to do that. That's very well put. You know, you want to grow the game, not just domestically, but internationally as well. And maybe Green Day is the way to go about doing it. For today's daily poll, this comes from my own personal experience. And I'm pulling the curtain back a bit this morning and yesterday morning. I've been dealing with a rash of different tech issues. And so I wanted to bring this uh, question forward. So we rely heavily on technology in our daily lives. But... Issues can pop up unexpectedly. How well do you handle tech issues when they arise? Very well, somewhat well, or poorly? And I want to welcome in uh, the co-host filling in for me as I fill in for Dave Elizabeth Moeller and the entertainment reporter Laura Bain. Elizabeth, I'll start with you on this one. How well do you handle tech issues when they <laughs> pop up? Oh, I'm laughing because I had several this weekend. Maybe there's tech gremlins that are coming to get all of us. I would say very poorly. I think uh, I have my home set up in a very smart home-esque type of way. You know, lights, coffee makers, the radio, the TV, etc. And so when things go down, it isn't one thing. Like if my Amazon device goes down, it's not just that device, but all of the things it controls. And so... Unfortunately, on Saturday, ironically, it was my TV that went down. Somebody had pulled a cable when they moved my TV, and uh, I couldn't watch AMI. I couldn't watch the Saturday Night Movie. That's a big deal. But I think I why I handle it poorly is it's it's like, where do you start, right? Especially if there's menus you have to read and it's a visual thing on the screen or in the case of the Lady A, it's like, okay, well, what do I fix first and how can I get around now all of my things not working? So I think for me, it's it's such a, and for many people, it's such a lifeline, but because I have so much hooked up, it's never just one thing that goes down. Um, 
And so uh, I think on top of that, on top of handling it poorly, um, I tend to be somebody who's very much like catastrophizing, like I'll never get it working again, as opposed to <laughs> it's not working for now, but it might, I might be able to watch AMI tomorrow. So a little plug there for AMI and to say, I don't particularly handle it well. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, it's a single plug that, uh, that has need, uh, come a bit loose and needs to be plugged in. Oh no, I'm never going to be able to watch TV again. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That Saturday night movie. I'll never see see it again <laughs> i i personally am i i i would say poorly as well um especially but i Don't i will put say us together <laughs> well the thing is i will say i have a slightly higher threshold for handling it because i i like to think of myself quite competent with technology but it'll get to a point where it's like i've I've, I've tested everything. everything. I've tried everything. I've plugged, I've plugged everything in. <laughs> exactly. I've done all those steps, and yet, oh, the systems are still not working. The, I, I've been on this show, and I've talked about the five different uh, wireless printers I've dealt with in this past year. So that kind of goes oh, to man. show just the, the level of frustration that I do get with technology when it's supposed to work and it's supposed to function very straightforward and yet it never quite does it. Laura Bain, what about you? How well do you handle tech issues when they arise for you? Yeah, I'm relating to a lot of what each of you are saying, especially that word uh, catastrophizing. I had jot, <laughs> jotted down in terms of how I handle tech issues, but um, I, I think overall I handle them reasonably well when they're sort of need to be dealt with immediately, which isn't to say that I am tech savvy and like Elizabeth, I can have issues with navigating menus and things like that. But I feel like I sort of, well, my TV actually also <laughs> went down over the weekend, but I, oh, no. I you know, got to searching back for those uh, that warm warranty information and kind of troubleshooting, okay, what are the next steps? Um, but at the same time, I procrastinate um, smaller issues, which, uh, so I guess it's it's good that I handle those big issues well, because they probably come from those smaller issues that I procrastinate. Um, I have a, a software right now, an accessibility software on my computer that I know is not updating for some reason. It, I don't know, corrupted files. I don't understand what that means. Something I need to probably get some help with, but uh, it's working for now. I just click no, no thank you. I'm not going to do the update. And so I'm creating a bigger problem down the road. So that's why I, I say somewhat. Well, I, I stay pretty calm when disaster arises, but I also create that disaster by, um, you know, procrastination. Well, and, and Laura, you mentioned accessibility software because that's a whole other realm that uh, the disability community has to deal with and oftentimes the the support or or the solutions if there are issues with disability uh, related uh, software or accessibility software or hardware it can typically take slower uh, a, a slower response time or or the issues may not be as as clear to solve elizabeth you mentioned too you have a a pretty smart home, you know, you use a lot of uh, different yes, devices. Yes, we won't say the name of the device exactly. just in case. <laughs> exactly. We don't but, want to cause problems yeah. at home. No, 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 <laughs> we don't. But, you know, I really relate to what Laura was saying, too, around accessibility software. And I think sometimes my biggest um, fear is if I log on to a website, and this has happened, our school has changed its online learning management platform, and I logged on the other day, and it was totally not configured for accessibility the way the previous one had been. So that's really stressful, too. And then you're going, 
going, okay, how do I troubleshoot? I have to submit this assignment. So yeah, and the smart home for sure, there's certainly lots of pros, but the con is like when the internet goes down and we had a, an issue with an internet provider in the summer, quite a big one, um, then you're you're really stuck, right? Like, what do you, what do, you do? How do you make a coffee? How do you, <laughs> those basic things. <laughs> Do you need the internet to make a coffee? Oh, I guess if you're using everything smart related, yeah, that makes sense. I was like, wait a minute. See, that's that's always been my my fear when it comes to like really smart home like integration things like that. It's like I've had enough issues with my routers, with my Wi-Fi, my internet that it's like I I struggle with the devices I have connected. If I put everything on there, then I'm just uh, really you're beholden. For trouble. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. What? It, so quickly, before I let you go, I want to find out, what is the device that gives you the most problems tech-wise at home? Laura, we'll start with you on this one. Oh, that's a really tough question. Um, well, yeah, not my none of my Apple products, like not my iPad or my iPhone. So I'm going to say it's my primary laptop that I do all my school stuff in. And that's probably just because I have JAWS, I have ZoomText, I have Kurzweil, and then I'm also kind of interfacing with all of those different university platforms as well, which aren't always ideal. So yeah, definitely my- I hear you. Elizabeth, <laughs> what about you? I'm going to say my TV, even though I have the, the, the TV hooked up so it, it'll talk to me, it's still a lot of menus don't get read out. And if, if there's no signal, it doesn't say there's no signal. It's just a big note on the screen that says no signal. And for me, it is a printer because printers are literally the worst device for the home. They they rarely do what you need them to do. Thank you both for chiming in. I appreciate it. And for you at home, if you want to chime in as well, you can do so by voting on the poll through Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. or on Twitter slash X at Accessible Media. Coming up next... The Odin's Rethinking Disability Conference is currently underway in Richmond Hill, Ontario. I'll share my interview with one of the event speakers, Kelly Thibodeau. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in on audio on amiplus.ca. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Odin is hosting their annual Rethinking Disability Conference in Richmond Hill, Ontario. The conference is designed for Ontario employment services and businesses to enhance their professional development in an inclusive hiring process. Yesterday, I had the chance to meet up with some of the presenters from the event. I interviewed them remotely from Studio 7 right here in Toronto while they were at the event. I first chatted with Kelly Thibodeau. Kelly is the principal at Squarely Accessible, and she chatted about the importance of accessible practices in the world of social media. Here's my interview and conversation with Kelly. Hey, Kelly, how's it going? Great, how are you? I'm doing very well. So uh, let's dive right into it. What is Squarely Accessible? Yeah, so Squarely Accessible is a company that helps organizations create accessible marketing and communications, particularly website and social media content. And we do training, we do coaching, and we do some consulting. 
How would you currently describe the level of accessibility on social media right now? Oh boy, <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty hit and miss, honestly. The platforms themselves uh, really just don't have the same features. You don't access them in the same way. Content creators, I think, aren't necessarily thinking about accessibility. Um, certainly see more captions coming on videos, but even the caption style themselves isn't necessarily accessible. So it, uh, it feels like, you know, right now it's sort of a space where there's a lot of opportunity to really show your audience uh, your values in a way that you connect and care with them uh, in a more deeply significant way. And what would be some of the misconceptions around accessibility within the social media space? Mm -hmm. Well, I think generally people think that accessibility is sort of boring, it's hard, it's complicated, it's an extra layer. And I really believe in helping people take small starts and start being more curious about how people experience the internet online and also just challenge their own conceptions of what disability is, right? Like when you think about uh, just people who are part of an aging population or experience change because of uh, a certain circumstance and not necessarily somebody who has a permanent disability uh, and may or may not use uh, adaptive or assistive technology at all or in the same way as possible. So I find like that curiosity, that spark, that's the thing that's really important to get people to start paying attention when it comes to making their content more accessible. And so building off of that, like what what are the biggest challenges to convince these companies to really get on board with accessibility to show that it, it is a positive thing, that it can have a positive impact and, and even grow users uh, for their platforms? Mm -hmm. Well, organizations are certainly spending a lot of time on their diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies, right? And they're working really hard to show that they care about inclusion and belonging. And then when their website and social media content isn't accessible, it's like they've just lost the opportunity to really connect those values in a very public way. And uh, there's certainly legislation around accessibility, right? Which has some organizations starting to pay attention because there's legal and moral and financial risk associated with creating inaccessible content. The problem with just focusing on legislation alone is that you stop thinking about people because you're so focused on sort of that checkbox, you know, rules-based exercise when really it's about, um, about people and belonging. In terms of the future of social media, how hopeful are you that future is going to be accessible? You know, it's interesting that when um, Meta launched Threads, they launched it without any accessibility features. And so when you see a company the size of Meta launch a new platform where accessibility is, it's an expectation, right? And they've made that decision that even in a beta launch, they're going to like delay or defer that. That's really, really disappointing. And I hope that there's some lessons learned. There was certainly lots of, you know, um, criticism in the accessibility community about, you know, that particular circumstance. Uh, Twitter has long sort of set a bit of a standard in terms of just making accessibility more visible. Now, you know, X Twitter lives and dies on a little bit of a, slippery slope these days but uh i hope that there's there's more acceptance around accessibility really being the baseline and helping content creators 
see that as part of the content production and publication process. So they're thinking about it from the beginning because that's the other thing that happens is when you leave it to the end, that's where it's really heavy and it's a place where you're ready to quickly compromise all of those good practices and principles that you put in place throughout that process. So uh, I, I want to say that I'm hopeful, but reality is kind of shaking out a little bit differently. And when you are engaging with these companies, what are like some of the takeaways that they kind of identify as, oh, this is something that we can actually engage with, we can incorporate, and mm-hmm. it does have that positive impact. Like, let's let's kind of look at the positives yeah. of, of what, when you actually yeah. do sit down with these uh, companies. Right. And so another philosophy that I really stand by is that small starts are better than not starting at all, and that it practice makes permanent. So some small things that organizations can start doing is something as simple as what's called camel case your hashtag. So put capital letters on the first of every word because screen readers will read that as separate words instead of all one mushed up word, right? So it's about changing habits and then getting used to doing that and then keep stacking on top of it. And at the same time, making sure that accessibility isn't just one person's job, like I say, at the end of that process, but it's something that you're thinking about from the very beginning, especially, you know, think about, you know, video content as an example and the planning and production and things that go into that. It can start to uh, end up, you end up almost having to go back to the beginning and there's not too many organizations that are, are willing to look at it that way. But like I say, uh, just starting and talking about it can really start to make some significant change. Uh, and it signals to your audience that you care and that you're paying attention. I, I really like the practice makes permanent um, uh, line there. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm going to have to start uh, using that in my own life. I've never heard it before, but it's phenomenal. Yeah. Where can folks go to learn more about what you and your organization do? Yeah, so uh, my website is a great place to start at www.squarelyaccessible.com. I'm also active on LinkedIn. It's my favorite social media platform, which surprises a lot of people sometimes, but uh, findable there. And then uh, email, of course, is kelly at squarelysocial.com. So uh, before you go, I need to know why is LinkedIn your, your favorite social media platform? Oh, you know, I just uh, find that both the the algorithm gives you a lot of visibility. It's easy to create connections with people, search for people who care about the same things or doing great work and just get to know them and build relationships. So that's my favorite part of LinkedIn. Honestly, it's less so much about putting out tons of content and more again, like getting back to people and building relationships. So uh, it's always just been a place that I feel like there's a lot of opportunity to do that. And not a lot of people are doing it. So that as well uh, makes it a really rich and engaging place. Kelly, thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you, you too. That was my conversation with Kelly Thibodeau. Kelly is the principal at Squarely Accessible. And again, to learn more about their organization, visit squarelyaccessible.com, squarelyaccessible.com. And I'll be sharing more of my Odin conference with you all week. And to learn more about Odin's Rethinking Disability Conference, you can visit odenetwork.com slash rdc2023. I'll say that one more time. odenetwork.com slash rdc2023. Coming up after the break, 
A House of Commons committee has made its recommendations for a veteran's employment strategy. Reporter Megan Gilmore lays out the details. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. Veterans often struggle to find jobs once they leave the armed forces. Government committees have studied this topic for years. Another report was released last month that contains several recommendations for a veterans' employment strategy. Megan Gilmore reported on this for Canadian Affairs, and she has more on this topic and joins me now. Hello, Megan. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, Alex. How are you? I'm not too bad. So, Megan, let's dive into this topic. What's the problem that a veteran's employment strategy is looking to solve? Sure. So, obviously, from even the, the wording of, of the strategy, like we're helping veterans find employment after they leave uh, the forces. But it's not enough just that somebody has a job, that they're getting a paycheck from work. One of the things that this report really highlighted is that veterans often just struggle to find meaningful jobs after they leave the forces. So the House of Commons Standing Committee on Veterans Affairs uh, released uh, recommendations uh, late last month that were aimed at creating a strategy for a veteran's employment for veterans employment. And according to this report, 8,500 people lead the armed forces each year. And of those 8,500 people, about half, so like a little over 4,000, are trying to find employment after they leave. Um, and the report goes on further to say that veterans actually have a lawyer, uh, sorry, a lower unemployment rate than uh, non-veterans, uh, than, than civilians. Uh, so they are employed, but they did say that they are more likely to say that they're not employed to their full potential and that more than half change employers during the first three years after they leave the military. So it's um, it's not just getting veterans jobs, it's getting them jobs that they can remain in, that they'll say meet their full potential uh, that they have as workers. And why is it so difficult for veterans to find that meaningful work that they find satisfying? Right. So and it largely has to do, uh, some people would describe it as a clash of cultures. So I spoke to Doug Allen, who was in the infantry for 20 years. He's now out in Halifax and does like, like he works uh, with uh, people recovering from trauma or he works to help train uh, those who are working with first responders and military members. Uh, but he talked about how there's this disconnect between how the military and how common corporate Canada talks about things like leadership. You know, um, there's just a different understanding of what, what that means. And that they, for somebody like himself, he had decades of experience in the military doing high level leadership jobs where the stakes are literally life and death. But then when you leave the military and you're looking for a job, um, that those years of experience often aren't recognized by employers. 
So it's like you're starting back at the beginning when you've already had decades of management experience and that's not often recognized. Uh, there's often like a feeling that the military has its own language and culture and that is not necessarily something that easily translates into corporate Canada. So that that's one of the reasons, just like this disconnect and like um, some people, some other people I spoke to will talk about uh, like urban myths that uh, veterans may not always understand what it means to work in the corporate civilian world, but also employers in the corporate civilian world have misconceptions about veterans. Uh, so um, that those are some of the overall issues that really attribute to it. I'm curious, how does disability uh, play a role in, in this issue that veterans are facing as well? Sure. So I think actually, uh, first of all, the conversation of, of veterans and how we care for veterans is actually key to understanding disability organization in Canada, right? Like, so classic example that people are likely familiar with on AMI, the CNIB was started out of a need to help veterans who've been wounded in the war, right? So um, I think we may often separate these two conversations, but they're also, they're always, they've always been very linked intrinsically together. So obviously um, a lot of veterans do sustain uh, mental or physical disabilities uh, during their work. And part of the report looked at veterans who especially struggle to find employment after they leave the forces. And that includes those who are medically discharged. And also 10% of veterans report being unable to find a job in their first year of release because of a disability. So a disability actually is a big, big part of this conversation. And there's some recommendations in this report that relate to that. But uh, when it comes to disabled veterans finding employment, then we're starting, you know, to look at things that we talked about in other segments, just about inclusive uh, workplace environments in general. Well, you, you teased it there. So what were some of the recommendations that were found in this report? Sure. So one of them is that there needs to be research to understand why some veterans struggle more with finding employment than others. So um, it's pretty uh, commonly understood that like women who are veterans will struggle to find employment, uh, people who fought in combat zones, uh, people who are medically released, uh, which is the language of, of the military there, um, to they often struggle to find employment, but there actually just needs to be more research done to understand more about who these individuals are and why they're struggling. Uh, there's a whole bunch of recommendations. Some of them are things like that Veteran Affairs set up a platform where veterans can contact employers directly. Um, there's a lot about reviewing the many programs that Veterans Affairs has to help uh, military members transition out of the military and into life as a veteran. Uh, but there's uh, many, many different projects, programs, Alex, and they're all a little different. And for example, there's ones that have to do with helping uh, pay for your education, but you can only you're only eligible for that program if you've completed X number of years of service, which means that a whole group of people are not eligible and they may have sustained injuries. So uh, there's there's calls to adjust eligibility criteria for certain programs to make them more inclusive of more veterans. And then there's also uh, just practically about getting people more jobs. Uh, the public service can be a place where veterans and their families 
uh, receive employment. Veterans are theoretically given preferential uh, treatment and in, in hiring. It's it's a point up for them. But there's still not a lot of veterans who are actually working in Veterans Affairs, which is interesting. So uh, there's recommendations there that Veterans Affairs Canada set targets for hiring veterans as well as their spouses. Now, there are also plenty of people and organizations who are working to, to help veterans find employment. And you spoke to someone who is in that industry. What did they tell you? Yeah, so I spoke to a few people who work in, in this. Um, and, uh, for example, if you talk to uh, the city of Ottawa has a veterans task force here. And if you talk to people who are involved in that, they'll say, really what they do is they work as a catalyst. Uh, they help employers and veterans find each other and learn how to talk to each other and dispel some of these quote-unquote urban myths that we were talking about earlier. So a lot of organizations, that's really what they're doing. They're just helping veterans and potential employers understand each other better and, and know what the other needs. I also spoke to an organization called Helmets to Hard Hats, and they help veterans find jobs within the unionized construction industry. Uh, so they'll talk about how, you know, veterans are used to a structure and working on a team and unionized construction jobs have that. You're working, you know, they call it the, the, that brotherhood of skilled workers who have that shared common focus. So that can be really helpful. And, and it's also uh, if you're in a unionized construction environment, there's likely higher pay than, than if you were elsewhere. So you're really trying to find jobs that can be second careers. One of the, the women I spoke to, Eleanor Taylor from uh, True Patriot Love Foundation, she's a veteran herself, and she'll say, you know, veterans don't want charity. And it would, uh, we have the thousands of men and women in this country that we as taxpayers have spent so much money in their careers and their development while they are in the armed forces. It is good for us, both financially, but also just as a society, if we make sure that when they leave the forces, however or why they, no matter how they did it, that they have access to good second jobs once they're out in the civilian life. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And um, Megan, thank you so much for bringing this topic forward. But before we let you go, the last time you were on, you were talking about some of the, the work you do, you were actually uh, um, kind of going to Phoenix to an accept a journalism award. First off, congratulations mm -hmm. on that. Thank you. But were there any highlights from your, your trip down to Phoenix? Okay, so um, yeah, like you said, um, last week I went down to Arizona State University to accept an award from the National Center on Disability and Journalism. Um, I met Amanda Morris, who was the New York Times first disability fellow. Um, and I, I know we've referred to her often on AMI. So that was really cool. Had a bit of a you know low-key celebrity moment. She was pretty excited that I knew who she was. Uh, but Thursday morning, I flew out and uh, Alex, we had snow and ice in Ottawa. And my plane needed to de-ice and we were very much delayed and I almost missed my connecting flight. And I was terrified. I was like, if I miss this award ceremony because there was snow in Canada, I have fulfilled every stereotype of this country. <laughs> like, this is, I'm just, I'm just reinforcing this. Yeah, yeah. Um, thankfully, I made it. It was good. Had some great Mexican food. Highly appreciated. Um, I did sign up for a hot air balloon ride the day I was there. Okay. Um, but then my balloon had some technical difficulties and could not leave the ground. So I have pictures of me with lots of hot air balloons, just not a picture of me in an actual hot air balloon. But maybe next time. Maybe next time. And I, I got to like you know go to a concert at the Desert Botanical Gardens. 
but you definitely enjoyed some warmer, warmer weather. So you're, you're saying that any form of air transportation on this trip was impacted for you. You weren't having very much luck in trying to get up into the air. Yeah, well, now that you put it that way, Alexi, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, like, I don't think there were too many hassles with the flight back. Um, yeah, you know, I, I learned about how different airlines approach disability accommodations, which is always, you know, a good thing to know. Um, I'm now at the point, though, because I've flown so much that it's, and like, most of the flight attendants I have are very good. But there's kind of, like, this moment where I'm like, I actually know what you're supposed to be telling me right now. Like, let me give you the script. Mm-hmm. that you are supposed to be reading me at this moment. Let yeah. me help you do your job. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that and that's it. It's your, you be kind of you you identify, okay, where where's the the baseline? What's supposed to be done in this moment? You you become yeah. so familiar because you travel so often and then it's like when when different uh airlines or companies are meeting that or not meeting that, you kind of become a very aware of that. Megan Thank you so much. I'm glad to hear that you did make it to your <laughs> awards ceremony on time and you were able to accept it. Hopefully, the next time we get together, there's going to be less eventful um, uh, stories to share on on travel. But have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you. And when I finally make it in a hot air balloon, I will let you know. Okay, sounds good. That is Megan Gilmore with a, a accessibility report. In 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller shares the weather story of the day. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minute. Canada's main stock index ticked higher yesterday, led by strength in tech and energy stocks. Toronto's TSX index gained 54 points to close at 19,709. New York's Dow Jones average also added 54 points, and the Nasdaq lost 30. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 110 points, and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 72.36 cents U.S. Asian shares traded mostly higher today ahead of potentially market-moving developments. China's leader, Xi Jinping, is set to meet with U.S. President Joe Biden on the sidelines of a Pacific Rim summit in California this week. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will travel to San Francisco tomorrow to attend the APEC summit through until Friday. And the face of King Charles is about to grace Canadian coins. The Royal Canadian Mint in Winnipeg is set today to showcase its design of the king that will appear on one side of all its new coins, replacing the current image of the late Queen Elizabeth. From the Canadian Press Business, desk. I'm Karen Rebo. It's now time to check in with the weather story of the day with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, you want to kind of follow up on something Megan was talking about. She was talking mm-hmm. about ice and mm-hmm. snow in Ontario. Mm-hmm. You want to look and explore snow in Ontario and the GTA, is that correct? I do. I'm sensing a theme. Yes, absolutely. Winter is almost here in the GTA. And we're expecting the first big snowfall coming very soon. If we look back at the past weather and we study some upcoming patterns, it might give us clues about when exactly this snowfall will happen. And even though some parts of southern Ontario had some pretty big snow earlier in this month, and we talked about that around Halloween time, the GTA hasn't really had a major snowfall yet. But don't worry, it's likely not too far away. We're wondering when exactly it will happen. 
And this week, though, we can rule out for significant snow. The weather will be mild for most of this week, thanks in part to that storm that we talked about yesterday in British Columbia, which is affecting the jet streams. And as we get closer to the end of November, keep an eye on the cold air from Siberia, or perhaps keep a feel out for that cold air. It will move into Western Canada first and then try to head east. And while it may not seem like a big deal, dropping temperatures can make it challenging for some places in Ontario to get above that freezing mark. And even though the storm track might be a bit too north for snow in the GTA initially, there's still a chance of winter weather towards the end of the month. So it's a good idea to keep those winter clothes and those snow clearing tools ready and willing to go. So you're saying this uh, nice stretch of warm weather we're currently yeah. enjoying is not set to last Enjoy very it while it lasts. Yeah. Enjoy it while it lasts. I also was on a plane last week with some bad weather. Not snow, but, <laughs> but rain. So maybe there's something in the air, quite literally. Quite literally in the air. Elizabeth, thank you so much. We'll you're check welcome. in with you later on in the show for the quiz. But coming up next... The Ontario Northland train is becoming more accessible. Community reporter Dorothy McNaughton in Sault Ste. Marie gives you an update on the progress. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown. I'm Alex Smythe. The Ontario Northland Transportation Commission recently held consultations about the return of the Northlander. Riders in this region have been invited to provide their feedback on what they want in their new trains. Sault Ste. Marie community reporter Dorothy McNaughton has the details. Hello, Dorothy. How are you doing this morning? I'm good, thanks, Alex. Okay, perfect. So, Dorothy, you attended a Zoom community consultation with Ontario Northland. What were the new accessibility features that they're adding to these new trains? Well, it's quite fascinating because, you know, anyone that's taken older trains recognizes that they're not terribly accessible. You know, they may have a lift on the outside of the train to help people who use wheelchairs get into the train and out of the train. But beyond that, you know, the washrooms are smaller and all kinds of barriers exist. So the, the new trains that Ontario Northland has purchased were paid for by the Ontario government and they're brand new. So because they're brand new, they're much more accessible. And according to the Integrated Accessibility Standards Regulation under the AODA, um, there has to be one accessible train car. So that's what they're complying with. And um, it looks it looks really nifty. Um, anybody that's traveled on trains in Europe, they're very similar. So wider aisles, a, a big space for someone who uses a wheelchair with access to the luggage rack. Um, bigger washrooms, bigger washroom doors. You can put a wheelchair right beside the toilet. Um, like it's all designed to be totally accessible, which is wonderful. And braille on the seat numbers. <laughs> oh, that's, that, that's phenomenal. So when are these trains set to uh, be in operation? And, and then what will the routes be that these trains will be using? 
Okay, it looks like 2026. Um, what we were told at the consultation was that 2025 is when they will be testing the trains. Um, next, this coming year, and already they are working on maintenance and bringing everything up to standards. Plus, because the train used to go Toronto to Cochrane and then connect with the Polar Bear Express, now it's going Toronto to Timmins, and there are 16 stops along the way. Um, and then there has to be access Timmins to Cochrane. So they're working on that. Um, so that'll all take time, uh, but um, it can't come suited up for a lot of people. Um, I often took that train to visit my sister in Englehart. So I know they're stopping there because I checked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, having ridden on the Polar Bear Express from Cochrane up yeah. to uh, Moosonee, it, it's a, a fascinating ride. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, it'd be great to get more of that accessibility to get from Toronto to the, the northern parts of Ontario. So uh, yes. we'll definitely have to keep that marked on our, our calendars. And speaking of calendars, the social calendars are starting to fill up for the season as a local CCB group is having a meeting and a Christmas lunch. So what will be on the agenda for the next CCB meeting? Well, it's this Thursday uh, from 1 to 3 at Pine Hill Church of Christ, 132 Cunningham Street, which is where we meet once a month. Um, people are really excited about this meeting because we are having a pharmacist, Jordan Jacks, um, from the West End Pharmacy, Pharmacy come and speak to us. We have had pharmacists in the past, but not for quite a few years. And um, everybody gets a lot out of it because someone just said to me recently, often pharmacists know more than doctors. <laughs> and, and so uh, expand on that. Like what, what are uh, folks getting out of these types of meetings and, and why are they so helpful? Oh, I'm glad you asked that because ours is the only in-person support group for people with vision loss in the Sioux. And our numbers have grown quite a bit since COVID. Um, people really need information. So we're all about getting people information about services in the community. We're all about getting together socially. And really most important to me is um, supporting each other in any way we can. Um, giving tips and tricks and that kind of thing that helps people who are maybe newer to vision loss. Um, so there's so many reasons and we, we just, we just have a, a wonderful kind of networking thing that goes on at every one of our meetings. And so I did tease that there was going to be a Christmas lunch. So when can folks expect the Christmas lunch to take place? Yes, that's Monday, October the 4th at a really nice restaurant, North 82 at 1130. And we, we organize rides. So um, I need to make sure that we know how many people will be going. Um, we do this once a year. And it's just a really a, a fun social time and we can all celebrate Christmas together. Some people don't have a lot of um, family or a lot of Christmas gatherings. So for some people, this is the only one they have. And we, we always have a great time. And I find too, you know, what's encouraging is when I book it, I, I tell the staff, there will be people with vision loss who might need extra help with, you know, what's on the menu and that kind of thing. And the staff are wonderful. They're so accommodating. And it's, so it's an education experience in itself, right? For sure. And, and now, Dorothy, I just want to uh, confirm because you you said it was October fourth. You, I believe oh, you meant sorry. December fourth. 
yeah, don't buy me. It's December 4th. That would have been a really, days. really early uh, Christmas lunch. But, uh, and, Too many days to keep track of. Yes, December yeah. 4th. And, and so you also wanted people, if they want to uh, get more information, that they can contact you directly, and you have your phone number here. So I will uh, read it out. It's 705 759 705-759-0733. And there was one more topic you wanted to, to bring forth. As always, you want to always just highlight the getting rural getting together with technology meeting. What's on the agenda for this month? Yes, you will be interested to hear. Um, a week from today in the evening, 7 p.m. Eastern and 4 p.m. Pacific, um, our group meets uh, via Zoom, and we will have uh, David Gregg from AMI. <laughs> uh, so we've had him before uh, talk about the new programming and talk about AMI+. Plus. There's quite a bit of interest in that. And, um, you know, we like to get the word out about um, what AMI has to offer yeah, so that's uh, Greg David, our, our uh, communications specialist uh, uh, with AMI, talking about all the great AMI programming. And uh, so I guess for more information, people can reach out to uh, david.gtt at ccbnational.net. david.gtt at ccbnational.net. Dorothy, thank you so much, and have yourself a wonderful day. Oh, thank you. You too. <laughs> that was Dorothy McNaughton. She is the community reporter in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. In a minute, Laura Bain will be here to share the entertainment report. But first, Steam has updated its handheld gaming console, the Steam Deck. Here's Mike Dubusky with Tech Trends. It is that crossbreed between PCs and the handheld market. IGN's Taylor Lyles says the new Steam Deck OLED ditches the old LCD screen. Essentially, it just means you're getting a brighter screen. It'll have a little bit of better battery performance because OLEDs typically perform better on battery versus an LCD. But overall, it's a subtle refresh. It's definitely not the Steam Deck 2. It's definitely an update of the original Steam Deck. That means there's not a lot of reason to upgrade if you already have a Steam Deck says Lyles, but if you were considering buying one for the first time... We could safely say that this Steam Deck OLED is the definitive version of the first generation of the Steam Deck. The Steam Deck OLED gets 512 gigs of storage and ships for $549, 20 bucks more than the original 256 gig version. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. And now it is time for the Entertainment Report with Laura Bain, who is here to discuss Canada's biggest literary honour, which was handed out last night. Laura, you want to share the details of the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Alex, or the uh, Oscars of the book world, if you will. <laughs> um, so those awards highlight the best in Canadian fiction, and the winner takes home $100,000 in prize money. And this year was noteworthy because it was the 30th anniversary of the award. So uh, I checked out the ceremony this morning, which you can check out on CBC Gem, or I watched it on the CBC YouTube channel. It was hosted by Rick Mercer. And there were a record 145 books submitted for the prize this year, which had me thinking, you know, it takes a little bit of time from a book's inception to its publishing. So perhaps there were some, some COVID projects kind of coming to fruition there. 
Yeah, abs absolutely. So you you mentioned you know there's there's the all the different uh, uh, submissions, but who took away the the big prize last night? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the big prize went to Montreal native Sarah, Sarah Bernstein, and that was for her novel Study for Obedience. So a young woman moves from the place of her birth to the remote northern country of her forebearers to be housekeeper to her brother, whose wife has recently left him. And the book explores themes of complicity, power, and displacement. So um, sounds pretty good. I haven't had a chance to read it. I have to wonder if perhaps Sarah has moved to... Uh, a remote northern country of her forebears because she gave her acceptance speech from her uh, country home in the highlands of Scotland. So that was kind of cool to see. We get to see her shearing some sheep. Um, but of course, it's not just the prize fund that authors take home. There's the well-known Giller effect, and that's been recognized as one of the top drivers of book sales in Canada. Uh, yeah, so even be yeah. Well, and, and that's it, right? You know, because like anytime there's that award ceremony or anything of that ilk, you you, you get that bump. You get that kind of highlighting, that, that attention paid to different media, whether it's in this case, it's obviously the literary world, but you could also get it with the Oscars, with the film, you get it with the Emmys, with television, mm -hmm. Grammys, with music. It seems to kind of permeate out that anytime there's attention in, in a, uh, a uh, award ceremony highlighting uh, a piece of uh, media, people are going to want to check it out. That's for sure. And even just for those on the short or even the long list, you know, um, I know that that can be a source for me when I go to look for my next read. I'm wondering if uh, accolades such as the Scotiabank Giller Prize, you know, appeal to you when you're looking for your next read or do they not make any difference? You know, they certainly do. I, I will say that I... I'm a bit of a sucker when you see, especially there's like the big like stamps on, on the book covers and it's nice and shiny, it catches your eye. You're like, mm, I, okay, maybe I'm gonna give this a, a closer inspection. And then you read the back cover, you get a bit more information. And then I, I do tend to kind of at least look into whether it's a book or, or something like that, that, that is winning a literary prize like this, that, okay, let's see if it does pique my interest, uh, more so than any others, because I, I really don't read a lot now. I, I used to be a voracious reader. I haven't been so in, in quite a few years, but that said, the last few books I've picked up have been books that have been either awarded uh, prizes in the literary world or been recognized or nominated. So I guess that goes to show I am uh, following these types of trends as Giller bumped, so to speak. What about you, Laura? Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think I see that circular stamp on the audio. For me, it's an audiobook cover, and I don't always necessarily look into what it is. Oh, it's won some sort of prize. But, um, yeah, I find that I, I have a lot of books on my wish list usually, so that's kind of where I go first, ones that I've heard through word of mouth or maybe I heard an interview with the author. Um, and I'm busy with school, so I don't do as much reading as I would like. But then when I kind of run out of that wish list, that's sort of the next place place I'll go is I'll maybe go somewhere like CBC Books where they have things like uh, the the Giller Prize winners listed and I'll start combing through. Something I've really appreciated, um, you know, about the Canadian literary scene, at least as an outsider, is that it does seem to be very inclusive of diverse uh, perspectives in both like the short and long lists in terms of including those from underrepresented communities. And I'm always looking to 
learn about experiences that are different from my own. So in particular, I'd say that's one reason that I do go to places like this to find books rather than maybe just kind of word of mouth or what are on the bestsellers list, because that's not always quite as representative. Well, that's that's a great point, Laura. And uh, we'll leave the conversation there, but thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day and we'll chat with you tomorrow. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Okay, that was Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, we have the regional news update. And Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv and in audio on AMIplus.ca. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave Brown. It's Tuesday, November 14th, 2023. Coming up on the second hour of the show, the Saskatchewan government is bringing in a financial literacy course to grade 10 next fall. Journalist John Lefke fills you in on the details and there's another edition of the weekly news quiz. This time I'm hosting, so I can't compete, but there'll be Alicia Yardley, Brock Richardson, and Elizabeth Moeller vying for the win. All that and more coming up on the second hour of the show. But first, we start with the regional news update. Beginning in British Columbia, BC's Minister of Housing, Ravi Calhoun, says that he's shocked and frustrated by an attempt to recruit people to take part in a scheme to skirt rules around short-term rentals. A Vancouver-based management company was offering $500 for people to change their driver's license address to match that of a short-term rental unit. They would then apply to Airbnb for approval to list a unit. Callan says uh, he shared a screenshot he took of the offer on social media. I was, you know, a little shocked and uh, a little frustrated that somebody would go out and suggest for $500 that people, you know, uh, put themselves in the line for fraud. It, it simply doesn't make sense. Over to the territories now. Residents of the Northwest Territories head to the polls today as the delayed territorial election takes place. Karen Rebo has this primer. The election was originally set to be held October 3rd, but it was delayed by legislature members in a unanimous vote held during a late August session. That vote happened as the NWT capital of Yellowknife and its roughly 20,000 residents were under an evacuation order because of raging wildfires. In fact, the wildfire season saw about 70% of the territory's population under an evacuation order. 16 of the territory's 19 seats are up for grabs. Three candidates have been acclaimed. Premier Caroline Cochrane announced in September that she would not seek re-election. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And now over to Ontario. Ontario is set to table new legislation today providing increased protections for workers in the restaurant and hospitality industry. This legislation will ban the practice of unpaid trial shifts for workers. 
Labour Minister David Pacini says that the new language will explicitly ban the practice of trial shifts. I mean, imagine telling an investment banker they're working for free today. You know, why should a server do it? So we're, we're making it very clear on, on trial shifts. The legislation will also ban the loss or deduction of wages due to customers dining and dashing. By making it explicit, we'll be a leader in Canada um, and, and protecting protecting workers that, that dine and dash is not acceptable, and, but it's never going to fall on the backs of workers. And finally, over to the Atlantic region. Nova Scotia is one of three provinces driving up the national average cost of rent. Data from rentals.ca and Urban Nation show that the average asking price for a rental rose 9.9% in October to $2,178. The average price for a rental in Nova Scotia is $2,097, which is a jump of 13.6% from last year. In Halifax specifically, the average price for a one-bedroom apartment is $1,875. Population growth and higher-priced units were cited as reason for the jump in prices. And that's it for the regional news. Now it's time for Sport Chat with Brock Richardson. Oh boy, Brock, Monday night football came and went and... As a Bills fan, you got to be having some mixed emotions this morning. Yes, I am. When I came on, you asked me how I was, and I told you on a personal level, I'm doing just fine. On a sports team level with my Buffalo Bills, not so well. The Buffalo Bills fell to the Denver Broncos 24-22 in a last-minute um, field goal, but the first field goal was missed, Alex, funnily enough. And then Buffalo had a penalty for too many men on the field. So these are the kinds of things, Alex, that I look at and I think, man, these are the brain lapses that cost you games. And the particular thing with too many guys on the field was the exact reason why this cost them the game. In the moment, they also had uh, four turnovers. And this has been the story of the year. Uh, the Buffalo Bills and their turnovers, and they're just having inability to get their offense going. And when they're down in the red zone, they turn it over. It's just a mess. And a lot of people are questioning, you know, Josh Allen, what, what is he? Who is he? Is he your quarterback? I would say so. But right now I'm looking at this going, this team doesn't look very confident, nor do they look like a playoff team. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, and, and Brock, so you mentioned some of the, the key plays from – the game last night, I would put another one on that list. The end of the first half, you saw Denver run out their field goal unit with seconds left in the half and made a long field goal. That was a key point because they didn't have timeouts. They literally had to rush the kicker onto the field goal and made it. That is something that Sean Payton, the head coach of the Denver Broncos, is very always prepared for. He's always prepared to know those situations, how to maximize opportunity to score points. And the fact that Denver made it, ended the half going up even further. I, I went to bed after that play and I'm thinking, that's going to be a key play in the game because the entire first half, as you mentioned, there was the turnovers. Just poor execute, uh, execution for Buffalo. Uh, the defense was playing okay, but... You know, the offense wasn't helping them. And, and when Josh Allen was throwing the ball, 
his receivers were dropping it. So I, I'm kind of on the fence. I, I agree there, there are questions about Josh Allen as a quarterback player. I think physically, he has all the tools in the world. He can make every single throw. He's big, he's physical. He's the prototype of a quarterback you would want. It's always those mental mistakes. And that's something that he has dealt with his entire career. Even when he would have miraculous playoff games against Kansas City and that back and forth game that uh, they played a few years ago. Ultimately, what did it in was costly mistakes and, and over aggressive uh, attempts to throw the ball. I think if you look across the league right now, the quarterback play is down just across the board. No one is really shining. Well, I, I guess the one that really is surprising everyone is the rookie quarterback, CJ Stroud, with Houston. And that's going to be saying something when a rookie is now starting to enter a MVP-type conversation just because around the league, parity has really made it that play and teams can win or lose any given Sunday. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, if you're looking at this from a broad, you know, fan of sports and specifically the NFL in this case, that is what you want. You want the, the parity to be spread out. You want this to be that way. So when you have rookie quarterbacks doing their thing, and and maybe some people would argue, well, it's due to the fact that people don't have much of a book on him. Yeah, okay, maybe, but credit the person for doing what they did. And, and I think that that's the thing. For me, I would also, on yesterday's game, Alex, like to shout out Russell Wilson, who really did play well. I mean, he was making plays out of nothing. He looked like the Russell Wilson from a number of years ago. Do I think it's going to be something we're going to see consistent, consistently? Not so much. Otherwise, we would have seen, you know, a better record from them. But I will say yesterday, he did play really well. But to me, the Buffalo Bills were the reason of their own demise. But, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, and we're going to be... This is a team that I think people are really going to be watching and uh, be critical of going forward in terms of Buffalo because... They, like, if you look at another sport, the Edmonton Oilers, they have Super Bowl aspirations. They were adding pieces to this team to really succeed. Buffalo is still playing well, but I don't think up to the level that people expect them. They, people expect them to come into this game against Denver and blow them out of the water. Denver is has not had a very good record this season. They haven't played well, but they showed up. Russell Wilson played well. The game plan was pretty solid. The defense took the ball away from Josh Allen when he needed to. And as a result, Buffalo goes home with a loss and a lot of question marks. So we'll continue to watch this team as the season unfolds. But Brock, you also wanted to highlight the uh, action in the NBA and specifically the Toronto Raptors. Yes, last night was a really good game against the Washington Wizards. They were down at one point, 23 points headed into the third quarter. Let me repeat that, 23 points they were down headed into the third quarter. They came back, won the game 111-108. This was an incredible game for the Toronto Raptors. They have really had this situation where they're coming out in games and really starting slow. It seems to be a trend that... You know, some would want to see change, like their head coach, Darko Ryakovich. He obviously wants to see that change. I will also tell you that they ended the game on a 22-1 to 1 point uh, run there. So that's pretty epic as well. This is the fourth highest uh, point differential they've won in franchise history. Pascal Siakam 
led the way with 39 points. Really, really good second half. But they want to clean up these turnovers. We just talked about it with the Buffalo Bills. Same thing with the Toronto Raptors. They're giving up the ball a bit too much, and I'm sure the coaching staff would like to see that changed a little bit. But in regards to the Toronto Raptors, I do have a question for you that was brought up on the broadcast. The question was, why do teams start slower coming out off of a road trip? The Toronto Raptors just came off of a 2-2 two and two road trip, very successful road trip, but they came out really slow. And you hear this all across sports. Why do you think teams coming off of a road trip come back home and start really slowly? Well, I think there's a number of reasons for it. Obviously, when you are on the road, you're you're in a more structured environment. You're in a hotel. You're with your team. Uh, the the kind of the coach and, and the the squad itself. They're kind of they're together more. They're they kind of go through this bit of a regiment. You'll have your free time, but you're you're kind of together most of that uh, time while you're away. Once you get home. You go back into your own bed, you you see your family, your friends, you, you relax, you kind of get back into your routine. Maybe there's a bit of that relaxation that happens. Not not much. I'm not saying that uh, any player really takes games off when they get home, but it, you can't help but mentally change your, your focus to being, okay, I'm home. I'm a bit more at ease. This is my space. I have a bit more freedom to myself. Whereas on the road, you're in that kind of structured environment. That's how I kind of view as why... It tends to happen. But what about you, Brock? Do you have any theories on this? I would also add, and I think this is what you sort of were getting at with the being at home. You go back to the quote unquote real life of home. These athletes have kids, they have families, they have situations that take them into real life. And I think that really is a factor. A lot of these people that we watch, we think, oh, they're basketball players or they're professional athletes, but they do have a life. And usually their family is living with them wherever their quote-unquote home team is. And I think that's part of the factor as well in that you kind of come home after a road trip. Everyone's excited to see daddy and husband or whatever the case is. And I think that can sort of be a distraction. Now, you do learn in sports. You have to learn how to do a little bit of distraction control. And sure, that's a thing. But it is really tough when real life kind of hits you between the eyes and you kind of go, okay, I got to take my kid to school or I got to take my kid here, there because my partner has been doing it while I've been on the road. I do think that's, that's part of it as well. Yeah. And especially too, with like a sport like NBA and NHL and MLB, where there's not necessarily that state, same uh, scheduling that it's one game a week. You're either going to be playing Thursday, Sunday, or Monday for your games. Whereas these other leagues, you're playing throughout the week, and it could be, oh, you're gone for two games, and you're gone for three games. You're gone for one game and back for three games. Like, there's not that sense of um, kind of consistency when you're going on the road as opposed to when you're going home. But Yeah, yeah very so true. There's a lot of those factors. Brock, thank you so much for bringing this topic forward, and have yourself a wonderful day. You as well. Okay, that was Brock Richardson with the Sports Report. Coming up after the break... The Saskatchewan government is bringing in a financial literacy course to grade 10 students next fall. Journalist John Lepke fills you in on the details. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Alex Smythe in for Dave. November is Financial Literacy Month, and Saskatchewan is marking the occasion with the introduction of a new course. The province will require grade 10 students to take a class on financial literacy starting next fall. There have been, this has been met with mixed feelings from parents, teachers, and students. Here with the details is reporter John Lepke. John is based in Saskatchewan. Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you this morning? I'm not too bad. So, John, can you share what are the details from this announcement? Absolutely. So the government has, has shifted. This is part of a sort of a, a reform of your requirements to graduate. Uh, the government has shifted um, some of the English and, and I guess in the university we call it social science requirements to allow students to take more electives while bringing in this requirement for uh, for financial literacy, which I think we often hear about, well, why didn't I listen? Why didn't I hear about taxes? Why didn't I hear about you know, building uh, you know, entrepreneurship and building a business or, or how to manage my bank account or again, how to do taxes? And, and this is a real effort to try to change that. Yeah, and so why was the move taken? Not only, you, you listed why it, it's valuable, why was it taken now? Um, I get the sense from the government that this move was made to because of the, uh, should we say, in the spirit of the evolution of the curriculum. Um, certainly when, when I was in high school, uh, I'm dating myself here, but uh, 13 years ago, you know, the closest you could get to a financial literacy course was uh, an accounting elective. Um, so this is just a further development in in curriculum, uh, a curriculum that in Saskatchewan you can very easily find online on a nice digital website um, to allow people into a little bit more of the modern era when it comes to understanding their own financial choices um, in this digital world. And so I, I did kind of tease off the top there that there's a bit of a mixed reaction, but what has the reaction been from uh, folks on this decision? Yeah, I say this with love and as somebody who did three years of an education degree, but if you get two teachers in a room, there will be three opinions, um, <laughs> which is often a good thing. Um, so the STF has said in, in reporting by the CBC that, you know, some teachers are for it, some teachers are against it, some parents are for it, some parents are against it, some students are for it, and some are against it. I think it's one of those things where truly time will tell, will this financial literacy course meet the goals and the needs of students? And at any time you've got a new curriculum and a new course, it's going to be um, a bit challenging from an implementation perspective. Um, and also how these classes will differ from, say, the education you get in, I'll pick a random Saskatchewan sound, you know, Assiniboia versus Sedley versus Regina versus Prince Albert. Um, it'd be interesting to see how these classes manage what, um, say, a northern community in, say, LaRange is looking at in terms of financial um, literacy and requirements as opposed to maybe, uh, you know, Saskatoon or Regina. Yeah, so in, in my mind, having uh, reflecting on my own experience in high school, I would have very much appreciated having some sort of financial literacy uh, course or, or program that was available because it's something so valuable, the fact that, you know, there are so many, like, for instance, the fact that Canada has one of the highest amounts of personal debt in the world, I, I think there there is a lot of value in 
having a uh, education involving financial literacy so people know that they're not you know there there are impacts to to kind of using credit cards and, and maxing out credit mm -hmm. cards and things like that but what about you where what are your thoughts on this move are you do you believe it's it's going to benefit people in the long run yeah, so I, I saw a joke, uh, I'm about to 80 years old, but, you know, I, I had I saw a joke on the internet that says, wow, I'm really glad I learned line dancing in gym class instead of how to do my taxes. Um, <laughs> I think that's, that's where I'm at with it, is that anything we can add to the financial literacy, I mean, I, I believe neither of us drive, Alex, but, mm -hmm. but the number of people I went to school with who immediately ran out and got a vehicle the first time they had a sizable paycheck, um, you know, these are, or, you know, trying to budget to get your first apartment, right? There are so many things that can go into financial literacy that I don't think students, not only in this province, but I think I'd argue outside of maybe some of the private education areas um, uh, you don't get in this country. I, I think that this course will have an impact, but I think it needs to have the time to develop and to sort of regionalize and contextualize to reach its its full impact. Yeah, like I I think back to some of the uh, you you the joke is phenomenal. Yeah, it's line dancing. I remember doing line dancing in 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 school and thinking like why why am I ever going to use it? But I also look at things like with with Matt. Why do I need to know? parabolas and, and like the area and, and, and measuring the the inside of them like unless you're going into a very specific or specialized field it, it seems like uh, a majority of students are not going to be uh, kind of uh, it's not going to be beneficial whereas something like this everyone is going to encounter finance in, uh, in their life mm -hmm. so incorporating that at the expense of a bit of math or, or social science or, or English I think is a a very wise decision to try to get to that point to make sure that everyone at least has a baseline, whether you decide to learn more or you uh, decide to ignore that uh, information, you still have a baseline knowledge that you're making sure every single student that graduates has in their arsenal. Absolutely. So there was another story you that uh, uh, came across your desk in Saskatchewan you wanted to, to discuss, and that is the fact that the province is expanding its childcare spaces. They've set aside new funding to create more spaces across the province. So why did this story jump out to you, John? Mm -hmm. the, so this story, as with, um, in Saskatchewan, it's really interesting, uh, and I think it's interesting in every province, but particularly in Saskatchewan, when because our government is currently at odds with the federal government on a number of fronts, um, these childcare spaces are part of, of a national agreement to bring more spaces in by by 2025, 2026. Um, and so these 2,300-odd spaces, a little bit more than 2,300, um, across 41 communities and 51 different centres um, are looking to make a dent. Now, there was some reporting from Alex Kwan at CBC last month where he was speaking to some of the people, the childcare providers, who were sort of saying this, this is a drop in the bucket um, and it isn't necessarily looking at attrition. This was before the announcement was made. Um, so we're really looking at a province that is struggling for childcare spaces that's not unique in Canada. Um, and, and these millions are looking to fix that. And so is there uh, any more details in terms of like the current level of need 
for these accessible, or not accessible, sorry, but affordable uh, child care spaces, these ones that are, as you said, like the federal government had really put that uh, uh, forward, and now the province is trying to uh, really step up the amount of spaces that they have within their province. Absolutely. So I mentioned that earlier reporting, and, and one of the sources who spoke for that story said that their waiting list in Regina is 1,900 people. Wow. Um, when they have very few spaces. Um, if you look at the list of these uh, these facilities, the most that is happening, and this is a combination of expansion, additional sites, and new organizations, the highest number is 90 new spaces in one singular place, and the lowest is six. So this is really, you know, spanning out across the province. Um, but this is really a struggle, not only for urban uh, urban environments, cities that we often hear about, but it's also a significant concern for uh, the rural population in Saskatchewan. Yeah, absolutely. John, thank you so much for bringing these two stories uh, forward and have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks for having me. That was John Lepke, who is a freelance journalist based in Saskatchewan. Are you interested in being part of a live studio audience? Well. AMI has an opportunity for you. Kelly and Ramya are taping the special episode of, of their show on Monday, November 27th. They are looking for 50 individuals to be a part of the audience. If you live in Toronto or the surrounding area and you'd like to participate, you've got to send an email to info at ami.ca. Info at ami.ca. Space is limited. And all those who are in attendance will receive a Kelly and Ramya gift bag. And on top of that, their names will be entered into a draw to win one of two Apple gift cards valued at $500 each. Along with that, there will also be five $50 Tim Hortons gift cards. So for a chance to win some of those great prizes, you must be a part of the live studio audience on November 27th. The taping will air on a future date on AMI-tv. So to confirm your participation on the live taping, send that email to info at ami.ca. Hope to see you all there. So coming up after the break, it's time for a roundtable chat with Elizabeth. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Alex Smythe. Elizabeth Muller, you had a idea to pick up on this conversation surrounding education. John was talking about education reform in <laughs> Saskatchewan. You want to talk about education reform in Ontario. Yes, I very, my, very much a theme today. Um, you know, Ontario announced back in 2020 that it was phasing out streaming, starting with grade nine. So streaming really divides students into hands-on sort of applied courses or a more academic track geared to going to university. And the province has introduced a new math de-streaming program in the fall of 2021, and it's since ushered in science and now this fall English. And Ontario was the last province actually to do away with streaming in grade nine. 
So I wanted to ask the panel, with the de-streaming initiative, the aim is to promote equity and inclusion to, by eliminating academic streaming. How effective do you think this approach will be in reducing disparities in educational outcomes among students? So Ramya, I'd like to throw over to you first. Elizabeth. Yeah, I obviously, um, I think that this kind of thing is very long overdue. I, am I correct in saying that it's Ontario that was the last province to kind of do yes. this? Or, yeah. yeah, so it is, um, you know, years and historically, I think that other provinces have learned or have, um, I guess, moved over to different systems and have tried different approaches through education to kind of um, make this less of an issue and less of a challenge for students choosing between applied and academic as we uh, know it in high schools. But as with a lot of other things, and this is not specific to Ontario or specific to education, but as with a lot of other things, <laughs> we see like we uh, see that, you know, government wants to change things. We see that, you know, there are we slap legislations and laws into place and say, hey, here are some ch changes we want to make. We know that it's for the better. Let's just do it. And it is with lack of teeth and lack of support. So where do people go for the resources and in this context we're talking where do the school boards go what where are the teachers coming from um how about all these other underlying challenges that we already know about like income like lack of staff like um uh, programs and not having enough support or uh qualified staff for different kinds of courses to begin with there's so many issues that were already there and now to add on the stress of this of de-streaming and um saying okay also you know maneuver everything around as you know it to make sure that this is happening is just i am assuming resulting in chaos and as it would because there's not enough support to begin with even be before this announcement and this approach that, that's a very fair point there, uh, Ramia. And uh, why don't we welcome in, in Nizreen uh, and get her thoughts on this. Nizreen, what are your thoughts on this? I think long overdue is correct, Ramia. I, I spoke about this with friends a few times about this finally happening. I feel like it always divided people with low income and high income and people with um, uh, access and accommodations and people without. And um, I feel like de-streaming was always an option and was always the way to go. And and finally, they decided to go for it. So I feel like this would be a great way and a great step to go forward. Uh, there's so many ways to de-stream and there's so many ways to go forward with academics. Um, so I, I am applauding them for finally taking that step. I think it is long overdue. Yeah, absolutely. Like for myself, I, I look back to what my my experience was in high school and stuff. And, and you start to think, it's like, you basically have to already start catering your high school career to basically represent what you're going to be looking to achieve in post-secondary if that's your plan. So if you want to go for science or STEM or anything like that, okay, well, you got to go into the all academic stream and you start that in grade nine, grade 10, and then you start going into the mm -hmm. academic versus the, or the uh, university versus the college courses, things like that. There is so much like determination that has to happen so early for students as they're trying to figure out what they want to do with their careers that you start to, if you take this away, you take a bit of that pressure off of them. 
Now, obviously, there's going to be issues if, if students are going to have more issues and struggling with some of the, the coursework, if it's just it's more of a challenge. You need those resources available, but I think taking some of the stress off students at such a young age to basically determine their career path already, I think is going to be beneficial in the long run. Elizabeth, what about you? Where do you stand on this? Yeah, and I realize I'm going to do a bit of fence sitting this morning. I I absolutely hear the arguments as to why de-streaming can um, can can help with some problematics around uh, funneling people based on sort of ability and income. But I also want to pick up on a point made in the last um, segment. I think it was you, Alex, that said like, why would I need to know unless I'm going to a specific career? What a parabola is. And I remember myself not being a strong math kiddo in grade nine, ten, and actually being in. Well, I'm I'm old enough that it was basic general advance. And I was in general math. And that was really helpful for me because I knew I wasn't going to go into any kind of math career. But for folks who were had an aptitude for math and for folks who really felt like it was something they want to explore, having a more advanced curriculum was helpful. And so I think for me, the, the issue isn't actually streaming per se, it's how and why people are streamed. So certainly I know there's been instances in my own academic career and, and in the careers of friends and colleagues where people have been streamed unfairly due to lack of accommodation. So maybe they couldn't get their, their slides in an accessible format, or perhaps they couldn't have an educational assistant in the classroom. And with those supports, they might've done perfectly well in a, in a, a perhaps a more academic stream. So that's where I, I do struggle with this concept of streaming um, as the more how it's being done. But I do think looking at the value of um, the fact that there are different learning styles and sometimes people actually know they want to self-select like I did with math out of something um, can be helpful. So I think for a lot of this, the proof is going to be sort of in the pudding of how this is done. But, you know, I also, I got to thinking about as high schools move to this model, how should this curriculum be adapted to meet the various learning needs of students? Um, Alex, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that there needs to be certainly opportunities and a greater as, amount of resources available. As, as, as we kind of, we have all touched on, uh, resources can, is obviously, it's, they're, take many forms, but I think especially when you start to de-stream uh, the, these types of courses, there needs to be opportunity for uh, whether it's it's more chances to talk with the teacher, more one-on-one -on -one, uh, training sessions or, or, or uh, um, points that you can have a meeting, you can have consultations, things like that, resources, maybe more resource teachers in the classroom. Obviously, these would all be great in any situation, but I think specifically when it comes to de-streaming, because there are going to be students who struggle who may have in the past chosen a not to go for the academic to applied for the terminology that I remember during my high school time <laughs> that uh, you you would have been uh, you would you were facing more of an uphill battle as a result. So making sure that mm -hmm. those students aren't getting left behind or just suffering grades because it's not something that they can really grasp the concepts on. Uh, but. Uh, Ramya, what about you on this one? Like, what resources do you think are, are imperative to make sure students don't get left behind? Well, to basically echo what you said, uh, Elizabeth, it's the intention, right? Like, I think a lot of us can agree that um, de-streaming is a great idea. We can understand why it's happening, the, the intentions behind it. But um, mm -hmm. to match the intentions, we need to understand the problems, the challenges that are going to arise, especially in the initial stages, which have already happened uh, with the grade nine um, de-streaming. So first of all, a lot of people are asking the question, 
then how about grade 10? What happens when mm-hmm. students go to grade 10 now? Are they going to get the same opportunities to not have to um, stream? And also, if we're saying um, there are a lot of, um, you know, marginalized population that are not successful because of streaming, right? Like the, the BIPOC communities and disabled students and people who need specialized support overall, if we're not now offering these resources, offering the specialized support, then it's not, again, there's no teeth uh, or, you know, enough to go off of. Like, yes, we made this broad decision to stop streaming and there's been some funding thrown into there and hopefully some new hires. But does that equal to the kind of support that needs to be obviously taken into consideration and in such um, nuanced levels in order to make this thing successful? Absolutely. Yeah, and- the, the teeth behind it. It's it's interesting. There's a quote that I just wanted to read from a teacher in one of the newspapers that I was reading, and it said, um, this is this is a great initiative, but right now I have 35 students in a class and one of me and yeah. no educational assistant. Mm-hmm. So that really resonated with me, Ramya, what you said. And Alex, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, no, that, it, this was a great conversation. I wish we could continue it, but unfortunately, <laughs> we have to wrap it up now. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for bringing thank this you. topic forward. And Nisreen, thank you you for uh, participating. And Ramya, before I let you go, you got to let me know what's coming up on today's episode of Kelly and Ramya. Absolutely. And it's actually going to be Grant Hardy and myself hosting today's show. We have a lot planned for you. So we have Curious Minds with Christine Malik uh, talking artificial intelligence and image description again, but we're taking it to a new level. She's been really experimenting with this AI uh, audio description stuff. So I'm looking forward to hearing what she's got in. The provincial uh, the provincial grouping of user committees is having a webinar to improve the quality of services offered to the users of the cell health and social network. So Montreal community reporter Mathieu Rochette is going to tell us more about what's going on there. And we have collections and hobbies later on in the show. And your visual producer for now with Dave Brown, Bruce Baclarian, is going to be joining us to talk about his extensive bike collection turned into hobby. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a good one. Bruce certainly loves to cycle. So uh, that sounds like a great episode. Kelly and Ramya airing 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio, AMI-tv. Ramya, have yourself a wonderful day. You too, Alex. And coming up after the break, it's Tuesday, so that means it's the weekly news quiz. We have Alicia Yardley. We got Brock Richardson and Elizabeth Moeller all going to battle it out for the crown. You're watching now with Dave Brown on ami Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Tuesday, the end of the show. You know what that means? It's time for the weekly news quiz. Now, I am in the host chair, so I can't participate in this weekly news quiz as normal, but we got three great contestants going head to head. We have Alicia Yardley from HR. Hello, Alicia. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Perfect. And we have two voices who were already on the show today. We'll welcome back first Brock Richardson, who is stepping in for 
us on the news quiz. Hello, Brock. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And last but not least, obviously, the co-host filling in for me is Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, are you ready? I'm ready to rock. Okay, perfect. I will quickly go over the rules. There are going to be three rounds of questions, three questions per round, three multiple choice options per question. You can answer correctly without hearing the options and get two points. You can answer correctly having heard the options and get one point. You get it wrong, it goes in the next contestant until the point is awarded. The order has been drawn up by Mary Daniel, the wife of producer Paul Daniel. The order is going to be Alicia, then Brock, then Elizabeth. So in round one, we start off with international news. So question one for Alicia. Last week, a hostage situation closed down this German city's airport for 18 hours after a Turkish man drove through the gates of the airport with his four-year-old daughter firing a gun into the air. What German city was it? Oh, my God. Um, can I get the options, please? Sure. Was it Munich, Hamburg, or Frankfurt? I'm going to guess Munich. That is incorrect. We'll now go over to Brock. Brock, was it Hamburg or Frankfurt? I'm going to go with Frankfurt. That is incorrect. Elizabeth Moeller, you get the default point with Hamburg. It is <laughs> excellent. It is the second high-profile incident at the Hamburg airport in four months after climate activists glued themselves to the tarmac in July. Ouch. Question Ouch. number two of round one goes to Brock, and this question is also related to Germany. Last week, this auto man uh, car manufacturer boosted workers' pay in Germany when faced with a unionization threat. What is the name of the car company? I'll need the options. Is it Audi, BMW, or Tesla? Uh, BMW. That is incorrect. Elizabeth, it goes to you. Is it Audi or Tesla? I'm going to say Audi. That is incorrect. Oh, Alicia, no. the uh, default point goes to you. It is Tesla. The U.S. electric vehicle maker had already raised wages by 6% last year. Wow. So we have one point for Alicia, one point for Elizabeth, both on defaults. Let's see if we can complete the trifecta. Elizabeth, this question goes to you. The American company Pizza Hut announced it would be offering a modern twist on a traditional dish by offering snake meat on its pizza to customers in this East Asian country. What country is it? Options. Is it Bhutan, Hong Kong, or Japan? I'm going to say Japan. That is incorrect. Alicia, is it Bhutan or Hong Kong? Um, I'm going to say Bhutan. That is incorrect. It is Hong Kong. Brock Richardson gets the point. Brock gets the point. So after round one, it's ones across the board with a point each. Now to round number two. It's all questions related to sports, and we start with Brock Richardson. On Sunday, Canada's women's tennis team won the Billie Jean King Cup championship for the first time at the International Tennis Tournament in Seville, Spain. What country did Canada defeat? I believe it was Italy. That is correct. Brock Richardson did not need the options. Two points for Brock. Canada previously best showing at the event came in 1988 when it fell to the Czechs in the semifinal. 
Question number two of round two goes to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, it was a tough week for Jay Woodcroft. On Sunday, he was fired from his job as a head coach of this Canadian NHL team. What team was it? I will need the options. Is it the Calgary Flames, the Ottawa Senators, or the Edmonton Oilers? I'm going to say it was the Calgary Flames. That is incorrect. Oh, Alicia, no. you have a chance to steal the point. Was it the Ottawa Senators or the Edmonton Oilers? I'm going to say the Oilers. That is correct. Okay, onwards to question number three, sticking with Alicia. This comes from the world of U.S. college football. The Big Ten Conference announced last <laughs> week it had suspended head coach Jim Harbaugh from, the uh, from being on the sidelines at games for the remainder of the regular season. It had been discovered that Harbaugh and his staff had been conducting an illegal scene uh, a stealing operation, a sign stealing operation. What university did Jim Harbaugh coach before his suspension? Um, can I get the options, please? Sure. Is it the University of Michigan, Baylor University, or Oregon State University? I'm going to say University of Michigan? That is correct for Alicia. Harbaugh staff had been accused of allegedly filming the coaching staff and sideline of one of the teams the entire game in an apparent attempt to determine the team's play calling and signals, and the University of Michigan is challenging that allegation. So at the end of two rounds, let's get the scoreboard up on the screen. We have three points for Alicia, three points for Brock, and one point for Elizabeth. Elizabeth, you're still in this game. We're starting with okay. you in round number three. These are all general news stories. So if you do go for two, you can tie up right here. Okay. Whitney Wolf Heard announced she is stepping down as the founder and CEO of this dating app. Which app is, uh, is she stepping down from? Uh, options, please. Is it Tinder, OkCupid, or Bumble? I'm going to say... B. Okay, Tinder. Cupid is incorrect. Yeah. Over to Alicia. Is it Tinder or Bumble? Um, I'm going to say Bumble. That is correct. Alicia comes ahead with a point. So Wolf Heard was initially the co-founder at Tinder. After being pushed out of the company, she went on to found Bumble in 2014. So Alicia, you have a big opportunity here. You can add to your league, make it very difficult for Brock to to win this, but we'll see how you do. So, what actor was named People's Sexiest Man Alive for this 2023 edition? Oh my God. You can't okay, take can the option. Op Absolutely. Yeah, I'm gonna. Okay, was it Pedro Pascal, Patrick Dempsey, or Liam Hemsworth? Oh, it was totally Patrick Dempsey. Totally Patrick Dempsey, that is correct, Alicia. At 57, he is the second oldest man to be named People's Sexiest Man Alive. The oldest man is 59-year-old Sean Connery, who was bestowed the title in 1989. Okay, Brock, question three of round three. I believe if you get this without the options, you can tie Alicia and make it go to a tie breaker. But... We'll see. Last week, Premier Tim Houston delivered an apology 
to the people of his province with disabilities for years of what he referred to as historic systemic discrimination. Which province is Team Houston Premier of? Need the options. You know, if you get the options, you don't have an opportunity to win here, Brock, or tie. Okay, let's just take a stab and go with New Brunswick. That is incorrect. Elizabeth, you have an opportunity. You couldn't get two points if you guess it without the options. Okay, I am going to go with... I'm going to go with Newfoundland. That is incorrect. Alicia, do you want to have the opportunity? Do you want to try to uh, guess without the options? Do you want to, Do you want the options? Because if you get it wrong, then I get a point and I feel like I win this game as a result of it. So it's up to you. What would Heck you like? yeah. I'm going to take the options. Okay. <laughs> it w w is it New Brunswick, which uh, Brock had already guessed? So it comes down to either being PEI or Nova Scotia. PEI? That is incorrect. I get a point. Thank you, everybody, for playing along. The <laughs> apology follows a remedy the province agreed to earlier this year as part of a legally binding settlement with the Disability Rights Coalition of Nova Scotia and the Nova Scotia Human Rights Commission. So with that, our winner is... Alicia Yardley, congratulations on winning the quiz this week. Thank you. I am just so honored. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate everyone. It was touch and go. It, it was tough. You know, there was opportunities. It was. Uh, it was neck and neck towards the end. But that is all the time we have for the show today. Alicia, thank you. Have yourself a wonderful day. You as well. Thank you. Brock, you have yourself a wonderful day. We'll chat tomorrow. We will indeed. You have a good day as well. Yes. And lastly, but not least, have yourself a wonderful day as well, Elizabeth. But we'll that, see you tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow. And I will see you all at home tomorrow as well. Thank you for watching and listening to Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I'm Alex Smythe. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.